Section 11 of Great Epics in American History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dykstra, Farragut, Iowa. Great Epics in American History, Volume 3. The French War and the Revolution, 1745 to 1782, by Francis Whiting Halsey. Section 11. Daniel Boone's Migration to Kentucky, 1769 to 1775. Number 2. Boone's Own Account. Footnote. Boone wrote this account many years after his migration. As his education was extremely limited, the article was put into literary form by a friend. Boone, in 1778, made the first white settlement west of the Alleghenies. His account is printed in Hart's Source Book of American History. End of footnote. It was on the 1st of May, in the year 1769, that I resigned my domestic happiness for a time, and left my family and peaceful habitation on the Yadkin River in North Carolina to wander through the wilderness of America in quest of the country of Kentucky, in company with John Finley, John Stewart, Joseph Holden, James Monet, and William Cool. We proceeded successfully, and after a long and tiresome journey through a mountainous wilderness in a westward direction, on the seventh day of June following, we found ourselves on Red River, where John Finley had formerly gone trading with the Indians, and, from the top of an eminence, saw with pleasure the beautiful level of Kentucky. We found everywhere abundance of wild beasts of all sorts through this vast forest. The buffalo were more frequent than I have seen cattle in the settlements, browsing on the leaves of the cane, or cropping the herbage on those extensive plains, fearless, because ignorant of the violence of man. Sometimes we saw hundreds in a drove, and the numbers about the salt springs were amazing. As we ascended the brow of a small hill near Kentucky River, a number of Indians rushed out of a thick cane brake upon us, and made us prisoners. The time of our sorrow was now arrived and the scene fully opened. They plundered us of what we had, and kept us in confinement seven days, treating us with common savage usage. During this time we showed no uneasiness or desire to escape, which made them less suspicious of us. But in the dead of night, as we lay in a thick canebrake by a large fire, when sleep had locked up their senses, my situation not disposing me for rest, I touched my companion and gently woke him. We improved this favorable opportunity and departed, leaving them to take their rest and speedily directed our course toward our old camp, but found it plundered and the company dispersed and gone home. Soon after this, my companion in captivity, John Stewart, was killed by the savages and the man that came with my brother returned home by himself. We were then in a dangerous, helpless situation, exposed daily to perils and death among savages and wild beasts. Not a white man in the country 
but ourselves. One day I undertook a tour through the country, and the diversity and beauties of nature I met with in this charming season expelled every gloomy and vexatious thought. I laid me down to sleep, and I woke not until the sun had chased away the night. I continued this tour, and in a few days explored a considerable part of the country, each day equally pleased as the first. I returned again to my old camp, which was not disturbed in my absence. I did not confine my lodging to it, but often reposed in thick canebrakes to avoid the savages, who, I believe, often visited my camp, but fortunately for me, in my absence. In this situation, I was constantly exposed to danger and death. How unhappy such a situation for a man! Tormented with fear, which is vain if no danger comes. The prowling wolves diverted my nocturnal hours with perpetual howlings. In 1772, I returned safe to my old home and found my family in happy circumstances. I sold my farm on the Adkin and what goods we could not carry with us, and on the 25th day of September, 1773, bade a farewell to our friends and proceeded on our journey to Kentucky, in company with five families more and 40 men that joined us in Powell's Valley, which is 150 miles from the now settled parts of Kentucky. This promising beginning was soon overcast with a cloud of adversity, for upon the 10th day of October, the rear of our company was attacked by a number of Indians, who killed six and wounded one man. Of these, my eldest son was one that fell in the action. Though we defended ourselves and repulsed the enemy, yet this unhappy affair scattered our cattle, brought us into extreme difficulty, and so discouraged the whole company that we retreated 40 miles to the settlement on Clinch River. Within 15 miles of where Boonesboro now stands, we were fired upon by a party of Indians that killed two and wounded two of our number. Yet, although surprised and taken at a disadvantage, we stood our ground. This was on the 20th of March, 1775. Three days after, we were fired upon again and had two men killed and three wounded. Afterward, we proceeded on to Kentucky River without opposition, and on the first day of April, began to erect the fort of Boonesboro at a salt lick about 60 yards from the river on the south side. On the fourth day, the Indians killed one man. In a short time, I proceeded to remove my family from Clinch to this garrison, where we arrived safe without any other difficulties than such as are common to this passage my wife and daughter being the first white women that ever stood on the banks of Kentucky River. On the 24th day of December following, we had one man killed and one wounded by the Indians, who seemed determined to persecute us for erecting this fortification. On the 14th day of July, 1776, two of Colonel Calloway's daughters and one of mine were taken prisoners near the fort. I immediately pursued the Indians with only eight men, and on the 16th overtook them, killed two of the party, and recovered the girls. The same day on which this attempt was made, the Indians divided themselves into different parties and attacked several forts, 
which were shortly before this time erected, doing a great deal of mischief. This was extremely distressing to the new settlers. The innocent husbandman was shot down while busy in cultivating the soil for his family's supply. Most of the cattle around the stations were destroyed. They continued their hostilities in this manner until the 15th of April, 1777, when they attacked Boonesboro with a party of above 100 in number, killed one man, and wounded four. Their loss in this attack was not certainly known to us. On the fourth day of July following, a party of about 200 Indians attacked Boonesboro, killed one man, and wounded two. They besieged us 48 hours, during which time seven of them were killed, and finding themselves not likely to prevail, they raised the siege and departed. The Indians had disposed their warriors in different parties at this time and attacked the different garrisons to prevent their assisting each other and did much injury to the inhabitants. On the 19th day of this month, Colonel Logan's fort was besieged by a party of about 200 Indians. During this dreadful siege, they did a great deal of mischief, distressed the garrison in which were only 15 men, killed two, and wounded one. This campaign in some measure damped the spirits of the Indians and made them sensible of our superiority. Their connections were dissolved, their army scattered, and a future invasion put entirely out of their power. Yet they continued to practice mischief secretly upon the inhabitants in the exposed parts of the country. In the October following, a party made an excursion into that district called the Crab Orchard, and one of them, who was advanced some distance before the others, boldly entered the house of a poor, defenseless family in which was only a Negro man, a woman, and her children, terrified with the apprehensions of immediate death. The savage, perceiving their defenseless situation, without offering violence to the family, attempted to captivate the Negro, who happily proved an overmatch for him, threw him on the ground, and in the struggle, the mother of the children drew an axe from a corner of the cottage and cut his head off while her little daughter shut the door. The savages instantly appeared and applied their tomahawks to the door. An old rusty gun barrel without a lock lay in a corner, which the mother put through a small crevice, and the savages, perceiving it, fled. In the meantime, the alarm spread through the neighborhood. The armed men collected immediately and pursued the ravagers into the wilderness. Thus Providence, by means of this Negro, saved the whole of the poor family from destruction. From that time until the happy return of peace between the United States and Great Britain, the Indians did us no mischief. To conclude, I can now say that I have verified the saying of an old Indian who signed Colonel Henderson's deed. Taking me by the hand at the delivery thereof, brother, says he, we have given you a fine land, but I believe you will have much trouble in settling it. My footsteps have often been marked with blood, and therefore I can truly subscribe to its original name. Two darling sons and a brother have I lost by savage hands, which have also taken from me forty valuable horses and abundance of cattle. 
Many dark and sleepless nights have I been a companion for owls, separated from the cheerful society of men, scorched by the summer sun and pinched by the winter's cold, an instrument ordained to settle the wilderness. But now the scene is changed. Peace crowns the sylvan shade. End of section 11